You are listening to Inclusion Evolution, a bi-weekly podcast that brings you insightful and engaging conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession, the technology space, the world of sports, and our everyday. Here are your hosts, Lisa Mueller and Michael Kasdan. Welcome back to Inclusion Evolution. I'm Lisa Mueller. And I'm Mike Kasdan. Well, Mike, we're a couple weeks into 2023. How are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? So far, so good. It's it's still uh, still early yet. How about yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. And one of the ones I decided to work on was uh, meditation. I've got my MindSpace uh, subscription. So, so far, like you, so far, so good. Nice. Excellent. That's great to hear. So now that we're into a few weeks into our resolutions, I thought I'd bring up one that I think all of us should add to our lists in terms of self-improvement goals. And I think that's becoming more cognizant of unconscious bias. But before we talk about that in more detail, Mike, maybe for people who are a little bit unsure about what unconscious bias is, can you tell us more about it and maybe give us a definition? Sure, I'll do my best. Um, I think this is a great topic. And a lot of us have probably been to the unconscious bias presentation or heard the term. Um, but but I'm really excited to take a deep dive into it because I think it's just such an important issue as humans and also like in the workplace. But, you know, in any form, bias is a prejudice against or in favor um, of a person or a group uh, compared to something else. And, you know, it can be either favorable or unfavorable. Um, and, you know, it's widely and, and accurately viewed as unfair to have that bias. Um, so, you know, people, groups, organizations all have biases um, that can yield either positive or negative results. But, you know, I, I think the important thing to recognize is that we all have biases. Uh, there's no one that doesn't as human beings. I think it's, you know, from what I've read and understand, it's just this natural kind of human reason that we have them. We, we tend to use shortcuts to make quick judgments in the face of lots of information and sometimes, you know, not having all the information. Um, and the, and the, that, that evolutionary, you know, human nature kind of thing can really serve us, but it can also be really harmful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's something we develop as, as kids, you know, it's kind of interesting. I don't have uh, children of my own, but I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And it's kind of interesting. You see those biases start to develop in things. And I think it's your environment and, and all the influences on you. So it, it is pretty interesting. And we all have them, like you mentioned. Yeah. And the way I like to think of it is I think of it kind of like legalese, like we learn in law school. Uh, you know, we actually then go out into the world and, and have to spend a lot of our adult lives unlearning that, um, or at least, you know, pausing and considering if we're making a fair judgment based on the information and reality before us or whether we're taking one of these shortcuts. And, you know, there are a couple of really good books that I read about this topic in the past couple of years. One is this book called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. Um, and the other is, is a book called Thinking Fast, Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winner. Um, and they both take a really deep dive into all of these different biases that affect our thinking. Um, and they have like great examples for how we have to check ourselves and and try and you know not be taken over by the biases because a lot of times when we make decisions based on those biases um you know they're not only unfair but we're not sort of serving ourselves with that yeah absolutely and and biases can have impact you know not only on our personal lives but our professional lives as well and um 
in our professional lives, they can affect decisions, let's say, of hiring managers and, and can negatively or positively influence the way you interact with your coworkers as well as your clients. So I think it's a really important topic, like you mentioned, for, for us to touch upon today. Yeah, no, I think it definitely impacts us in our professional lives. And one of the great examples I loved from that Undoing Project book, uh, I think the first chapter was on the former general manager of the Houston Rockets. And I know you and I are both sports fans, but it was uh, talking about the NBA draft and kind of recency bias um, and how, you know, these these organizations would evaluate, all, they'd have all this statistical information and facts about how, you know, a, a player performed in college. Uh, and that was actually the most predictive thing for how well they would be as a pro. But then they would come into these pro days and see like how super athletic they were and see their bodies and get excited about how high they could jump at the combine. And that kind of took over. And then you would draft people who maybe didn't perform well during college, but you were wowed by their athleticism. And they had actually built they actually had to build in, you know, procedures to kind of undo that bias to serve the Rockets better. So that was kind of interesting example to me. Yeah, that was a really, really interesting example. And so, um, well, let's go ahead and, and start talking about how you deal with unconscious bias. And I think the very first step is awareness. So I think let's talk about some of the different types of unconscious bias. And maybe a good place to start out is uh, affinity bias. It's also called like, likes, like. And this is referring to our tendency to gravitate towards people similar to ourselves, and we all do this. And you might do that in your hiring or your promoting of someone who may have the same race or gender, age, or even educational background. I think this is a really interesting one. And, you know, you see it playing out in ways you don't even think about. Like, you know, if I, if I live in a community that's, you know, all white, Jewish, like people, though, that's, that's who I'm comfortable with naturally. Uh, and it's just based on, it's like one of these shortcuts. I don't have information about other people. And so there's a sort of natural tendency to sort of group with what you know. Yeah, exactly. And you tend to see that too, whether it's at firm events where you're intermingling with maybe people you don't know, you're going to gravitate and stay in that group with people that are very common, you know, have a very similar backgrounds as yourselves, or maybe you're at a conference or something like that. And I think we all do that somewhat unconsciously because it makes us feel comfortable um, and, and we feel comfortable around those types of people. Yeah, no, I think so too. And it goes to how important it is to kind of push ourselves out there beyond our, our, our comfort zones. And, you know, and, and I think that's why it's so important. You know, it's one of these big DEI issues of getting getting to know people outside of that group because we see these groups and clusters form like all the time, whether at work or, or in communities. Absolutely. And I think uh, another one that you and I've probably seen in the legal profession a lot is ageism. And that's uh, discrimination against someone on the basis of their age. And I'm not only talking about people and attorneys who are older, but also uh, younger as well. Um, and this is one, unfortunately, being a female, I can relate to because it feels and I've, I've experienced it myself. It, it tends to affect us more than it does um, men. And it starts at an, a really early part of your career or early time in your career. Yeah. I mean, so this is one I'm, I'm getting older and I don't know that I've experienced <laughs> this personally, um, but, but I, I definitely have, have seen it. And it's interesting that you bring up, um, you know, we often think of it in terms of older folks, but also, you know, younger folks. And, and it is, it's one of these things where we, we bring in this, 
you know, unconsciously not knowing all the facts. I mean, you kind of assume this young person doesn't know what he's doing or, you know, this old person is starting to lose it a little bit. And you're you're leaning more on that assumption than on actual facts or giving the facts time to develop and prove that otherwise. Yeah. And I think a lot of times where we see this um, is in the medical profession, right? You might get a, a doctor walk in and you look at them and they're really young looking and you're like, did you graduate from medical school? I mean, that sometimes we wonder, you know, they're so young. Um, and that's a, a perfect kind of example of that subconscious thought and an ageism type of unconscious bias. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Yeah, so the, the next one I know that we talked about beforehand, and I think this is a really important one, is attribution bias. Um, so, you know, some people may see women as less competent than men um, and therefore undervalue their accomplishments, overvalue, sort of overlook uh, mistakes. Um, and I think this is a big one. You know, you see this in gender and, and in race. I know there's a really famous example that's like it's stunning to look at it's such a great proof of this um it's called the thomas meyer memo and i remember lear I, I learned about it through some some presentations and it's kind of my go-to example for you know the type of unconscious bias that you see with race but it's people are were presented with the exact same um memo written by a, a person named thomas meyer um and they provide that person's um you know resume and tell half the people that that person is black and the other half that that person is white and everything is the same except for that one fact and people's responses to the memo in terms of how well they think it's done, um, how good a fit they think this candidate is, um, are hugely different. And it's just, it's kind of scary when you see it in, in an example like that. It's very disturbing to to see examples like that. And then I think you were also telling me one about gender as well, involving a Michelle Silverthorne. Yeah. So I, I met Michelle at a, at a NALP diversity summit a couple of years ago, and she came and spoke to my firm. She's a, she's a speaker on diversity. She's fantastic. But she told this very compelling story about she and her husband, um, who's also a lawyer, and, you know, back when she was a practicing lawyer, um, she and her husband were the same year. Um, they both went to really good law schools. I think she went to Michigan. He may have gone to Michigan or, or kind of an equivalent school. But, you know, both came from great law schools going into the same firm, you know, both very smart and accomplished. And she, what she witnessed over the course of their careers was, you know, he kind of by, by dint of being a, a man, that was really the only salient difference, you know, got access to better assignments, kind of had, had mistakes more overlooked, was, you know, in uh, a more of an in-group. And when you project that through time, it led to, you know, seven years later, nine years later, you know, they were in vastly different, you know, points in terms of their career where he had gotten promoted and she hadn't, even though they came in, you know, as essentially the same person, right? Yeah, and I have an interesting story back from when I was about 19. Um, I grew up on Long Island, and my father was very insistent. He drove a stick shift car, and he taught my brothers and I to drive stick shift. And he had a friend that was having a very large party, and they needed people to park cars. And so I was asked to come park cars along with another uh, gentleman who was about the same age. And uh, this uh, couple came to the party, drove up, and they had this really nice sports car, and it was stick shift. 
And so um, the guy who was helping me park cars turned to me and he looked to me and said, yeah, that one's for you. I can't drive it because he couldn't drive stick. And the guy got out of the car and I, he's like, what are you doing? He said to me, I'm like, I'm going to go park the car. He's like, oh, no, you're not parking the car. He's parking my car. And it was hilarious because he kept the car kept stalling out because he didn't know how to drive stick. He kept grinding the gears. But, you know, that was a, a perfect example, you know, of, uh, you know, I couldn't drive a stick, but the the guy could drive the stick. Amazing, yeah. No, and when and when you hear these examples, um, that example, you know, the Thomas Meyer memo, like Michelle's story, um, you know, it really to me underscores like how critical it is to over to, to sort of to build in like real workplace procedures that undo these biases because they're just like they're so unfair and you end up not serving the organization or anyone who works there um, when you let sort of the biases have so much control and power. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think another one that a lot of us, you know, um, I think are guilty of too are, are beauty bias where we judge people, especially women on, on their attractiveness. And um, I think some people are viewed more positively or more negatively depending on how they look. And so this is one I think, you know, all of us need to be more cognizant about. Yeah, no, that's definitely out there. And also, I think, you know, side by side with that is, you know, height bias, weight bias, um, right? Like height bias is a thing. Uh, you know, it refers to having a preference for people who are taller, taller or shorter. And, and you know, one study revealed that people who are six feet tall earn $5,500 more every year compared to people who are five, six. Um, and so, uh, you know, tall people, you think about CEOs who are tall, um, you know, tall people are, I think, bias wise viewed as, you know, healthier, more capable, more employable. Um, you know, I'm six one, so I'm kind of good with this one, but the other ones are bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm very tall myself and I have noticed being female that some of my colleagues, women who are shorter you know, have definitely been, um, comments have been made and, and other, you know, there's an assumption that, you know, maybe they're weaker, they're not as, as strong as somebody, you know, where I didn't get those kind of comments. Um, so I have definitely seen that one in action. And, and I think the weight one um, is another one that is very, very common that we all do subconsciously, particularly people who are, are um, overweight is one that I think we all, like I said, sub subconsciously find ourselves doing. Yeah, and I think yeah, it, it's 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 interesting how much this you know may come from like the really like the lizard brain, like old survival. Like you know, you assume that the shorter people are the weaker ones when we're out there, you know, in the wild trying to survive, and you know, we're just not in that world anymore. Um, and, you know, and, and probably those biases are unfair to start with, but, um, but they really persist as kind of a part of our human brain that we, you know, and it happens without us even knowing about it. Yeah. The shorter people aren't going to be able to run out, the, run away from the predator as fast as the people who with the longer legs and the people who are heavier, yeah, aren't going to be able to outrun them either. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But another one that I think is super powerful um, is confirmation bias. Um, which refers to the tendency to look for or favor information that confirms beliefs that we already have. And I think this is, to me, so important because um, we see this every day. I think social media, to me, yeah, is like the huge example of, of confirmation bias because it, there's so much evidence that shows that even when people are presented with objective facts that sort of 
that really disprove a belief they hold. Um, you know, the beliefs they go into are more powerful than those facts. And they tend to, you know, cherry pick and do kind of everything they can to end up in the place they started. And I think when, when you're trying to have an innovation mindset and a growth mindset, um, this is like a particularly uh, important one to look at. Because if all we're doing is kind of confirming our already held beliefs, which may be right or may be wrong. Um, you know, I don't think we're growing or leaving room for innovation. And I think that's that's bad uh, on a lot of levels. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, we've seen a lot of this the last few years. And unfortunately, if you do have an innovation mindset, you're, you're not going to be innovative, creative. You're just kind of going to be stuck where you always are. And I think that ties into conformity bias as well, which, um, you know, where your views are swayed um, or influenced by the views of others. So if you're, you know, looking for people who have the same beliefs as you, and then, you know, you're being swayed by those people, you know, it, it's a kind of a double whammy. Yeah, no, conformity bias. And and again, it's so interesting. I, I, I kind of love this conversation, taking the time to kind of go through each of these, because for each of them, when I, when I look and squint and turn my head to the side, I can totally understand the rationale for each of these things. And, you know, it's like for this one as you know, as humans, um, you know, we're social creatures and, and, and being in a group is really important to survival and thriving. Um, so of course, you know, we're swayed or influenced by, by the views of the group. Um, so you can see like where the roots of each of these are, but I think you can also see um, how important it is to overcome them and, and rec try and recognize and be aware of when you're acting in a biased way. Um, so, so yeah, that, that conformity bias and sort of that group think, I think is another great example. Yeah, absolutely. And so another one, and we've touched on this a little bit is gender bias and that's preferring one gender over another and assuming that one is better for the job. Um, and I think this one we see quite frankly in law firms and the example you provided a little bit earlier is a, a good, good, uh, demonstration of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is a huge one, gender bias and race bias and, um, you know, making assumptions about people's competence or strength or weakness or intelligence, um, you know, based on their gender or the color of their skin. I mean, that's, you know, incredibly prevalent. And we really have to, you know, focus on undoing that you know, as much as possible, of course. Um, you know, the next one that, that I know we talked about is the halo effect which is the tendency to put someone on a pedestal or think more highly of them, you know, after learning, like learning or something that you think is impressive about them. Um, and, you know, it comes from kind of the angel halo, right? Like putting a figurative halo around the head of that person, even when it might not be deserved because you're just judging that person based on a single trait. And I think, you know, this is, you know, people make assumptions about people all the time. They, they meet someone who's wearing, you know, a great suit versus wearing sweatpants or someone that, you know, looks like clean cut, you know, rather than having a tattoo or, or finds out one great thing about a person and then assumes that person, you know, is competent across all different areas when they're maybe only an expert in one area. Um, so, so yeah, biases can not only be um, thinking negatively about someone, but also kind of thinking positively uh, about someone uh, in a way that's not always, you know, deserved. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that ties into the horns effect, which is the exact opposite, where you're, you're thinking negatively about somebody based on one characteristic or even one experience. So you may have a bad interaction with somebody and then you're just automatically flat out assume um, that there's, you know, that person's bad, you're making a judgment about them. 
Um, and, you know, really just might have been an isolated kind of experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then I know the last last couple ones we had on our on our list um, from when we were speaking before was um, name bias, like judging a person based on their name and their perceived background. Um, you know, we see this all the time. We see this when, you know, people not pronouncing people's names correctly or being unfamiliar with names. Um, that, I think that's really important, um, you know, in reviewing resumes and, you know, candidates for jobs. Um, and then, you know, weight bias, we mentioned earlier earlier along with beauty bias and, and heightism. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's a, a list of just some examples of some different types of unconscious bias. So I thought, Mike, we'd move on and talk about some things individually that we can do to reduce unconscious bias and then talk about things that, that law firms can do. And and I think we've alluded to this a couple of times. You know, we have to accept that we all have these unconscious biases. And it's, as you mentioned, it's something that has evolved over time and um, it's part of being human. And we can't deal with these unconscious biases unless we acknowledge that we actually have them. Yeah. And it's, it seems so simple, uh, that part, but yeah. it's actually really, um, you know, that, that, that part is hard. I think a lot of people are very defensive, right? And they think, you know, oh, I'm being... I'm being called racist or I'm being called sexist um, when the fact of the matter, this is, this is a human thing that everyone has and we all have to be become more conscious about our unconscious biases and just accept them. It doesn't make us bad. It makes us human. Um, but, you know, understanding them, then, you know, then we can move on to kind of how we can reduce it and become more aware of it. Um, but, you know, that can be a hair trigger issue. Like people tend to get defensive and they say, oh, no, I'm not biased. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it was interesting, you know, you think you don't have these biases, but I would encourage people um, to take an implicit association test. Harvard has a number of them, 15, and they're easy to find. And I've taken a couple of them and, and the results can be really surprising. You don't think you have unconscious bias towards a certain religious group or ethnicity or, 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 you know, maybe guns. And then you take some of these implicit association tests and you realize you really do have them. So those can be really insightful things to do. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. And, and, and uh, I have actually not taken that test. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. The implicit association test uh, at Harvard, I'm going to check that out. I think that's a great exercise. Um, you know, the, the other thing that I think we can do to, to reduce unconscious bias and it also sounds simple, but, 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 you know, is make considered decisions. Um, I think a lot of times unintentional bias driving decisions is a lot more likely when you make quick decisions or act spur of the moment, right. You don't take the time to reflect and think and pause. Um, so I think, you know, taking a step back, um, is really important. That's what Daniel Kahneman was talking about in his book. Um, you know, thinking fast, slow is that kind of, there are two kind of ways for decision making and you know it is important to be able to make snap decisions sometimes um but a lot of times um it makes sense to slow down and try and be more measured about it and i think this is also an area where we can actually create that as a matter of policy and procedure like inside institutions so this is not just an individual this is not just me saying hey lisa you should you should be more considered with your decisions but actually building in policies you know when you're reviewing a resume or how or, or when you're you know reviewing a candidate for a job or for advancement um you know that that really build in that sort of more objective decision making and leave less to kind of hey you know i like that person you know we, we you know we're both in the same yacht club or whatever, you know? 
Yeah, I think especially when reviewing resumes, there's a tendency to really jump to really quick decisions. Like you see a few things and you kind of like you're either, you know, really excited about that candidate or, or dismissive. And I think sometimes we just don't put enough, you know, conscious effort into those types of things. Yeah, I've also seen some interesting interesting discussions around how to interview. Um, I think most people um, interview, they're not really given a lot of guidance as to the questions to ask. You just kind of go in there and have a conversation with someone. And I think when it's, I, I understand that's that's nice. Of course, you want to have a conversation with someone, see if you get along with them. But when it's totally free form and there's nothing objective or reasoned about it, um, I, th I think that's that's a recipe for kind of all these biases coming up, right? Like you're, you look at their resume and I think as a human, um, you know, you see something similar and you're like, oh, we were both, you know, we both love soccer or we both grew up in this place. Um, and I think that can that can leave you like more subject to biases. And and I, I've read about, um, you know, some some places where firms are trying to, um, you know, not eliminate that, but but definitely build in like these are objective areas that you should hit in your questioning. So it's not just this free form discussion that might be more subject to bias. I agree. I think having a set set of questions that you use when you interview and not leave the conversation to kind of just meander into commonalities between a candidate and an interview interviewer are really, really important and can help eliminate some of those unconscious biases. Yeah, I think so too. And then I think along with that, besides making considered decisions, we have to be more proactive in monitoring our own behavior. And you know, we all kind of have these, make these fast decisions. We rely on our gut, but I think we have to really question sometimes those first impressions and our extreme reactions and, and spend some time reflecting on, you know, how quickly we're making those decisions and, and think about whether or not um, there was any unconscious bias that was at play there. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think another one is try and widen your social circles. You know, we were talking about before kind of confirmation and conformity bias. I think, you know, don't sit with the same colleagues all the time, you know, move around, spend time with different people from different cultural and academic backgrounds. Yeah. And I mean, I think this, you know, in the beginning, this is one of these things, I think you're, it's a natural tendency. Um, but I think, you know, it builds up your cultural competence and it just leads to better understanding. It'll lead to, to, to better, you know, working relationships, better human relationships, uh, and also help overcome some of the biases because the biases um, tend to fill in when we don't know information and then, you know, assumptions kick in. So I think the more we know people, the more we, more we learn about people who maybe are different from us or, or grew up for, you know, whatever, different ge geographic region, different ethnicity, different religion, the more we know, um, the more we, you know, the, the, the more you know, <laughs> and the less, the less you have, uh, you, you know, you're making assumptions that, that come from the pl a place of unconscious bias. Absolutely. Another one I think is is setting ground rules for behavior, you know, in, in the workplace. Um, you know, I think as as managers or as supervisors or as you know people on a team, um, I think making sure that that everyone gets a fair hearing, has an equal chance to give their opinion, uh, that people aren't interrupted. I think that we do see some of these biases kick in. The one that pops to mind, um, you know, is kind of the mansplaining when like, you know. Or, or taking or, or someone taking credit for an idea that a woman may have put forward um, because of kind of a of, of, of bias more so than reality. So I think, you know, right, like these ground rules can kind of help put everyone on equal footing. I think when everyone knows the rules of the game, it can reduce that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that ties in well, you know, with the next one here. If you see something, speak up, you know, speak up if you notice bias. Um, so if you see that male colleague talking over a female colleague, or if you see assignments or projects only going to men versus uh, women or only white colleagues instead of, you know, maybe black colleagues, you know, speak up and say something about it. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really important. I think it's also really important that, you know, the speaking, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable speaking up and speaking up doesn't always have to, you know, be uncomfortable, doesn't always have to be like in a meeting in front of 10 people. But I think sometimes like having a quiet word is also really important. So I think speaking up in in whatever way, you know, sort of suits the moment. And sometimes it's, it's speaking to someone, you know, maybe out of the presence of everyone else. Um, but I think I think it's really important to speak up. And, and you know, I also think, you know, this is an uncomfortable area. I think, uh, like I said in the beginning, a lot of times people are defensive about their own bias. I think just sort of fostering a culture and understanding and and realizing yourself, like, you know, if you get it wrong, just like apologize. Like we can, uh, we can only deal with these issues of bias that everyone has, um, you know, if we're honest and, and we admit our mistakes and, and, and there will be mistakes. Um, and I think that the more we operate from a common understanding of that and the more we do apologize when we do get it wrong, um, I think that also is really important to kind of overcoming them and, and creating change. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree on that one. So those are some of the things, Mike, we can do as individuals. Now let's talk about maybe things that law firms can do to help mitigate unconscious bias. And, you know, I think one of the first ones is making sure that employees understand that stereotyping is the foundation for bias. And we need to educate our employees, lawyers, support staff, everyone, and help raise awareness and keep people mindful um, about their stereotyping behaviors and their perceptions. Yeah. And I think, right, education and awareness kind of comes first. And I think, you know, with that, I think it's also important to have leadership. Um, I think it's, you know, it, we can all sit through an unconscious bias presentation or a presentation where someone comes in and talks about stereotyping. Um, but it, it's a whole different thing when actually when, when leaders are actually um, setting expectations you know, letting folks know that that this is something that that the firm is prioritizing. You know, the mitigation of bias. You know, when when actual you know leaders um, are you know using relevant terminology and and you know living the sort of values of diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, I think you know when when people see leadership living those, I think that's really impactful, right? It's not just like a one-off. I'm going to go learn about unconscious bias and then go back to doing it the way we always do it. Um, so I think that piece is really important too. Yeah, and I think tied in with that, I think the leadership is so important in holding them responsible and accountable um, for their organization's values um, really helps demonstrate the importance of an unbiased workplace um, to the organization's culture. So I think that's a really great point. And then I think maybe setting expectations is the next one. Let employees know that you're prioritizing bias mitigation and make sure you're using the right terminology, the right words, so people understand um, what unconscious bias is about and make sure they understand the firm's values when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then and it gets baked into kind of everything, right? Like, in, like if you think about the different processes of the firm, like so being transparent about, you know, your hiring and promotion process, um, you know, so that employees know that those processes aren't biased towards hiring and promotion based on gender or age or race or sexual orientation or any other factors, 
And I think, you know, it's good for the firm to be proactive and, and really communicate this, um, you know, proactively um, recruiting people from diverse backgrounds and experiences. Um, the more transparent you are about it in terms of communications, the more trust you, you build among employees in the hiring and promotion process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are some firms and some companies that are using blind evaluations so that employees are represented solely by their work and not their race or gender. And, and that goes back, I think, you know, to the Thomas Meyer memo that you mentioned before, you know, where the same exact memo was given uh, to two groups, one group thinking it was, you know, done by a white male and another by a black male and, and the interesting results and somewhat disturbing results that came out of that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think blind evaluations and having these like clear objective criteria for evaluating qualifications, evaluating performance and being transparent about all that, I think, goes a long way um, in in addressing these issues you know, as an organization. Yeah. And I think another thing firms can do is promote dialogue, right? And creating a culture that promotes open expression and discussion, not only about bias, um, but it also includes educational opportunities and, and helps build trust among their employees. And that will only do things like help reinforce the, the firm's values and, and goals. Yeah. And, and, and I think we also talked about um, earlier, like meetings yeah. um, and making meetings inclusive. You know, and we talked about speaking up when, when you see something wrong, but also I think, you know, being aware of who you sit next to, who you engage with, making sure everyone has sort of equal amounts of interaction as best as best you can and making sure that everyone feels like they're being listened to and and um, and responded to instead of, you know, maybe, sh you know, sh shoved to the side or not given equal time. I think, you know, that's that's a way of, of making sure everyone gets heard. Um, and everything is sort of considered more objectively and, and less based on who said it or what we might think about who said it and sort of some of those biases that come to the surface. Yeah. And then another one, and we've talked about this already, um, is providing bias training, which most firms uh, now provide some type of bias training, which, you know, I think only reinforces these concepts. And I think also it, it's reassuring to employees, lawyers, support staff, things like that to know that um, the issue of bias is, is being taken seriously and is being actively discussed and addressed. Yeah, and no, I think so too. And, and, uh, and yeah, I, I often think about trainings that are kind of like box checking exercise yeah, versus exactly. the impactful training. I think it's, it's really hard to do this in kind of a one-off. Okay. You know, we did, we did the bias training, so we're good here. Um, and that's why I think so many of these things we're talking about, um, like builds off that training, but also integrates this into actual, actually the way we do business. Um, but certainly, you know, tra training is important. And I think, you know, also, I think just to kind of close out the topic, like, you know, as with anything, I think, you know, asking for feedback and, and having a mechanism of people making complaints or if, if there is an issue, um, you know, I think, I think those are also really important, right? Things like, serving, you know, your employees or even even former employees to kind of understand what's happening on the ground, um, I think is really kind of a critical piece to, to organizational change. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are really, really important. Otherwise, without some of those anonymous complaint avenues for employees to take advantage of, you know, things are just going to fester and people are going to leave and, you know, the em environment is never going to change. Yeah. So, I think, I mean, this has been a really interesting discussion. I think about unconscious bias all the time because um, I, I think, 
we experience it and and we we do it every day in kind of all our all our interactions and i think to me some of the takeaways are you know becoming more aware of these biases trying to slow things down with ourselves um to to kind of give objective facts and reality a chance um and, but also in terms of organizations you know really trying to integrate these these practices into the organization um is is kind of a long-term complicated thing but i mean i think there is a pathway to do it um it just takes a lot of intentionality and I think that is it for this week's episode. So Lisa and I will catch you next time on The Inclusion Evolution. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Inclusion Evolution. The views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the hosts and not of their respective law firms. Share your thoughts with us by emailing us at llmuller at casimerjones.com or mkasden at wigan.com. 